This is David Tarkington, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park and the First Family Network. You are listening to the teaching ministry of our church. Thank you for downloading this sermon. If you have any questions about the church, go to firstfam.org or call us at 904-264-2351. We are in Ephesians 4 this morning, so if you have your copy of God's Word, turn to Ephesians 4. We'll begin in verse 11. As you're finding that, I'll remind you of part of our vision frame. We have an, an element known as our strategy, and we do have a strategy as a church. We're not just randomly trying to do churchy things and calling it good. Our strategy is inclu- includes equipping disciples through relational connections, through family equipping, and through worshiping together so that we can be that kind of church that is intentionally equipping disciples to be disciples who make disciples. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church in Ephesus and says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it it builds itself up in love." That as the church. Have you ever been told to just grow up? Because that's what Paul says we as the church are to do. We're to just grow up, to be equipped, to be the saints that God has called us to be, to minister as God has called us to. So one of the things I want to just remind you of is that you are deeply loved. You are deeply loved by God. It is because of God's nature. He is love and therefore he loves you. And sometimes I think we just need to be reminded of that. I know last Sunday we talked about the the healthy church is the church and the healthy Christians are those that love unconditionally as God has loved us. And yet I don't think we need to reserve that for one Sunday a year that's closest to Valentine's Day. We need to be reminded of that continually, that you are loved. Now not everything you think, say, and do is affirmed as good by God, but you are loved fully by God. God does not love us because of what we do. He loves us because of who he is. He loves us because of who he is. And here's something that maybe we just need to, maybe you need, I don't know who needs to hear this today, maybe it's you, but God does not love you more just because you behave. In fact, there are many times we don't behave very well. God's love does not increase. God's love is consistent despite our behavior. Now, he is pleased when we are obedient. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But does, does not love us more because we behave. He loves us fully now. His love is unmatchable, and yet with the Holy Spirit living within us, here's this great thing about our story. God allows us as his children, those who have been redeemed, those who have said yes to him, those of us who have surrendered our lives to him and repented of our sin and become Christians, we, due to the Holy Spirit within us, have the capacity to love as he loves. That's unbelievable. Sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes we love conditionally and claim it to be unconditional, but we love behaviorally when otherwise it's not. But God has given us the capacity to love that way. The amazing thing that God has done as well is 
as the redeemed, as Christians, as his children, as the ones who have surrendered our lives, hearts, wills, and minds to the lordship of Christ. Let me just go ahead and restate that because I grew up in a church culture, not intentional, but this is what I heard as a kid growing up. I always heard that you had to give your heart to Christ. Did you ever hear that? Give your heart to Jesus. Well, that's true, but, but I think it's, it's, it's a little more than that. So for those of us who have been redeemed, who have surrendered our lives, our hearts, our wills, our minds, and all that is us to him, to his lordship, and have been born again, we are loved. You are loved. You are saved, and now as the redeemed, here's something amazing. We know we are saved for a greater purpose. We have been saved for a supersized story. Let that sink in. You have been saved for an epic, for a story much bigger than anything you could have imagined on your own. For a God-created epic where God himself remains who he has always been, the author of this great story, but not just the author, he entered into the story, his son comes into the story, so God the author enters into the story and becomes the hero of the story. That is the story you and I have been invited to join him in, not as some unnamed extra in a crowd scene, but as a child of the king who has a role to play. I think sometimes we miss that. I think, I think sometimes we count things as, as, as the end of the story when it's really just the beginning. And I know in, in, in Baptist life, we've unintentionally done this, and oh Lord, forgive us for this, and old church members, forgive us for this, but we have sometimes unintentionally, maybe due to overemphasized evangelism, but not real evangelism, just an evangelism that gets people to repeat a prayer and join a church. We've left people in the baptistry We've determined that the, the, the starting line, we treat it like the finishing line. Now, I was on the track team once in eighth grade for about five hours. We got pins if you were on a team. So I was on the basketball team for an entire season, seventh and eighth grade, because as you know, you can't teach tall. So I was on the team. I wasn't any good, but I was on the team, and I was tall. And they gave you a patch. And, and, and we, we, had, we had junior high letter jackets that, let me just say, are not cool when you wear them to high school. Um, <clears throat> it's, <laughs> so I had one. And you had these little buttons on it. And I had, I had a little basketball pin because I was on the team, and I had a uniform. And I got in the game every now and then. And I thought, I'd like to have another pin. And, if you, and, and the track team was the, was the team to join because they don't cut anybody. I figured this out. And you got a little flying foot pin. And I thought, I'd like to have a flying foot pin. So I went to the track practice and track. And, and, uh, and after about, you know, five hours, I realized it's, it's not worth it. Um, I mean, some of you like to run. I, you know, why? I don't know. I don't know why. It's your thing, you know. If you see me running, just run with me because something's chasing me. So that's, I, know, I know that's happening. So I'm like, I can't, I'm, I'm too slow to do the running and I'm too weak to do the, the, the field events and I, and I could step over maybe the, the pole vault thing, but I, that's about all I got. So I quit that. But I did notice this and I've watched enough Olympics to know this is true. There is a starting line and a finishing line. And at the starting line, uh, everyone's lined up and they're all, it's a tie at that point. But that's not where you get the medal. You get the medal at the finishing line, right? 
So in our spiritual journey, though it is an incredible thing to get, we want you to get saved. We want you online that are at home that don't know the Lord to be saved, to know Jesus. But sometimes in churchianity, what we've done is we've turned the baptism into the finishing line. Like, woo, we got them. But the baptism is really the first step off the starting blocks. There's a whole race to run. There's this thing called sanctification of maturing, of disciple making. And I think sometimes we've just stopped at the start and patted ourselves on the back thinking, look how good we've done. And yet we're called to equip the saints to make disciples. Yes, we need to lead people to the Lord. Yes, evangelism must be a priority. But evangelism and discipleship are like the two wings on an airplane. You need both. And the journey of faith begins at salvation, at the born-again moment. But then you have all these decades of living for the Lord ahead of you, hopefully. How amazing that is. So sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. And I just want to give you some good news, that God has a story for you. He has his story waiting for you. There is this grand story that he has written, that he is, as I said, the author and the hero, the perfecter of it. And it isn't so much that, that you have to find the story. It's more as Christians, you need to step into the story and refuse to stay on the sidelines. I, I look at it this way. I think maybe there are too many Christians who are content with swimming in the baptistry and are not ready to run the race. They're just kind of hanging out like it's a hot tub because it's comfortable and it's a good spot. But God says, get baptized. There's a reason it's come up out of the water and now let's get the journey going. There's much to be done. And that's the good news about it. God has not saved us to become, as I said, some unnamed character in a large crowd in his story. We have been rescued for a reason. We have been saved for his story and preserved for a purpose. Now, I know I'm talking to Christians today. So to the non-Christians listening, your story needs to start today. For the Christians, that may be the same message for you. There may be something going on there. We are loved because of God, who God is, and we live in obedience because of our love for him. And, and as we're talking about what it means to be a healthy church, a healthy church filled with healthy Christians, here's what we know we cannot say. And sometimes we can define what we need to be by defining what we can't be. We cannot say we are successful in ministry simply because we have a building that is air-conditioned and heated and has carpet and, pat and padded seats. We cannot say that we have a large, nice building. We cannot say that we have a brand or a logo that is recognizable on the building, on the sign, on stickers and elsewhere, that it's, uh, it's known and it's cool and it's hip, whatever. And I know that some churches do that. I would dare say that we've probably never been cool or hip here, but we're, we're trying, right? We cannot say that we are successful because we have a lot of people on staff. A, a successful church is not defined by the fact you can go to their website, click the leadership team, and see a, a, a group of people show up on a page with a bunch of names and titles and email addresses. That does not define a successful church or ministry. We cannot define ourselves as successful because we have age-graded ministries. Because we have a kids ministry and a youth ministry and, and a college ministry and a single adult and a married adult and men's ministry, and that does not define a successful church or define a successful ministry just because we have the programming of the day that is expected by the crowd. 
If the church has all of those things, but misses on what we must have, we find ourselves being nothing more than an organization with a faulty understanding of health, believing falsely that creating church members is the goal. That's not the goal. That may have been perceived as a goal in the past. We need to get more people to join our church, more people to join our church, more people to join our church. It may have never been stated, but it has been stated, and that ultimately is not the goal of a healthy church. That's the goal of an organization that needs to fund all of its stuff to make sure the money continues to come in and that there's actually people to talk to when they're gathering in a room such as this. But that's not the goal of God's church. God's church, at no point in the book of Acts, no point in the letters that Paul has written, is there a goal to increase your membership to become a mega. The goal is to make disciples, to equip the saints for the work that God has called us to do. And perhaps, with all that we've faced in the last year, with all the joy that is a pandemic, this may be one of the benefits that God has provided his church because a lot of stuff has been erased that isn't necessarily what he has sent his son to die for us to be and he's causing us to ask some certain some very strategic questions and to abandon some things that <clears throat> perhaps in previous generations was good enough the lies of the church growth movement of the 70s, 80s, and 90s have revealed that big box customer first brand expanding celebrity pastored churches are not sustainable, nor are they biblical. The church growth movement that said, hey, do an evaluation of your community, find out what all the lost people want to do, then go act like lost people, and then when you act like them and you hang out with them, then you can trick them into joining your church. That doesn't work either. That's just a bait and switch with a cross on the building. See, the gospel hasn't changed, and yet somewhere over the past 30, 40 years, I think many American Christians thought it was, it was a little too messy to talk about Jesus. Let's just stay on the surface level and and let's just, can't we all just get along and feel good? The healthy church is not that church. The healthy church is not one known by flashy programming and temporal growth or even large crowds. The healthy church is one that equips strategically so that disciples are made and God is glorified. And I look at it this way. The healthy church is the church that recognizes there is a grand story God has written, is the part of, is the creator of, and he has invited us into. And the healthy church steps into that story and refuses to settle for other stories. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus gathered his disciples and those followers that were with him a few weeks right, right after the resurrection, and he's standing on that hill outside of Jerusalem, and he gives them this word in chapter 6, right before he ascends up in the clouds to the Father. He says, so, so in chapter 1, I mean, Acts 1, verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel or kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, he's saying, it's not, you don't need to know that. God's the author. He's already written it. He's got that. Verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Christ declared to his disciples that they would receive power when the Spirit came upon them. That would happen at Pentecost. 
And when that power and that giftedness arrived, they would be tasked to do God's work in ways they could not imagine. In fact, they were called to step into a role that they did not audition for. Think about that. They were called to step into a position as his disciples, as his disciple-making disciples in an era that had never existed prior to be the ones that God had placed to do the work that he would enable. And Jesus said this statement, and I always found it odd that he said that, that those that came after him would do greater works than he did. Now that's pretty amazing when you think about that. Because Jesus is not only human, but he's God. He's the son of God, God the son. And, and yet he declares that his disciples and those that were on that mountain and those that have lived throughout the centuries, and, and oh, by the way, you, you, would do greater works than even he did. And when you let that kind of sink in, you're going, are you saying we're like Jesus? No, I'm just saying Jesus limited himself by choice to be in one place at one time in human form. And when he ascended it up to heaven, the Holy Spirit came down and the Holy Spirit resides in those who have been redeemed who are Christians. And so wherever God has placed his church, the work is being done. And it is greater, it is multiplied, it is global. You see, Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem, he wasn't on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. And when he was in Galilee, he really didn't, he never made it over to Rome. And, and, and he wasn't in Europe, and he wasn't in Africa. He was physically constrained by his choice, by his own will, to be constrained by the laws of nature he built. So he was in one location at one time for 33 years and three years of public ministry. And when he left, what happened? The Holy Spirit comes and the church is dispersed. And here we are. We're here because of the greater things that were done. And I think sometimes we forget that. I think sometimes we forget that, that, that we are a part of something much bigger than ourselves. We are part of something that is huge. Jesus was saying there is this story <clears throat> authored by God and, and it's bigger than what could ever be imagined. It's bigger than whatever they could have experienced prior. And he's warning and encouraging and preparing them for that which would change everything. And when it came, it did change everything. But what about the church today? And what about our struggles today? I'm, I apologize. I'm, I don't want to cough. Hold on. Hear me go, mm, ah, okay. So here's the first thing I want you to, to just kind of let sink in, if you would. Small stories, small stories ensnare us. They trap us. Small stories. Everybody in the room has a story. Everybody in the room has a biography. You have stories that are unique to your experiences, to where you grew up, to who your family was, what family you were born into, what jobs you've had, who you married, if you married your kids, if you have kids, if you, what your parents did. I mean, you have unique stories. You went to this school, you went to that school, you had this, that, and the other. And everybody in here has an incredible generational story that you own. But compared to eternity, your story and my story is very small. I mean, I, I hope that doesn't offend you because you live in a world that says you're number one and you're the center of the universe. But I'm telling you, that's not what the Bible says. My story will be encapsulated in a paragraph or two in an obituary when I die just like everybody else's. And then the world will just move on and someone else will continue in their story. Now that doesn't depress me. It's just a reality check. It isn't all about me, even if I live like it is. 
It's not all about you. But sometimes, even as Christians, what happens is we get trapped in stories that are small, that we want to be big, but they're not big. They're important to us, but they're not eternally significant, and we allow it to happen. Regardless of the past chapters in our own stories, through the power of God and the gifting of the Holy Spirit, here's something you need to remember. You Christians are made for more than that small story. Not for our own name recognition, not for our own personal glory, but for a story much bigger by a God who is much bigger. This is not something to long for. This is something that's already there. You just have to step into it. As Christians, we have been given a great privilege, one that sadly has been forsaken by many because they have been ensnared by the small stories of their own lives. Think about this for a moment. Just, just let this sink in. And, and I don't want to depress you. I just want you to, let's get a perspective on this. If you were to ask another believer, a Christian you know, to give the most recent spiritual highlight in their life, if they have to think hard about it, that's an indicator something's wrong. And if they're my age or if they're 30 and over, I mean, let's just go there, and their spiritual highlight was an eighth grade youth camp event, there's something wrong. If the spiritual peak was something that took place decades prior, we may just be settling for small stories that we read in waterproof books as we swim in the baptistry refusing to step into what God has for us and for him. If your highlight on your Jesus journey was something defined simply by a gathering or an emotional response partnered with a free t-shirt or a concert ticket, you may be trapped in a small story. Small stories for church people are founded upon a term called safe Christianity. Safe Christianity is an oxymoron. And it sells well in American church, just so you know. And safe Christianity is what many people want, and sometimes that's what they're sold when they come to Christ. But our God is not a safe God in that sense. And that already bothers some of you. But tepid Christianity is not world-changing. Safe Christianity is what American evangelicalism has promoted for far too long with disastrous results. What does safe Christianity do? It ensnares Christians into a trap of small stories that ultimately do not matter. These are stories that are simply about the accumulation of stuff, temporal popularity, self-focused hustle, or something else that will be forgotten once our names are little more than a listing in an obituary online. Safe Christianity makes for cute postings on social media and a proliferation of Jesus junk sold at Hobby Lobby, but it does not actually do anything of eternal value. Safe Christianity turns Jesus into a religious lucky charm and convinces otherwise intelligent people that their small stories, where they are the main characters, are the ultimate story. And it is built as a trap. It's a trap founded on a lie. If your God is that safe, you may have missed something eternally vital. A safe God may be made in your image instead of the other way around. And to equip the saints involves revealing the snares of settling for small stories where sitting in a church building for an hour a week is the epitome of faithfulness. That's not what God saved us for. Just like baptism is not the finish line, neither is showing up 
the epitome. The safe Christianity sells because it's comfortable and it doesn't call you out to anything. It lets you just not even change. Now just think, th- think about this. If we're encountering a holy God on a Sunday morning through the proclamation of his word and the singing of worship songs, if we're reading the scriptures and we're coming to a place of worship, then there really, honestly, no one in the room, including me, should, not, should be able to leave unchanged today. If there's nothing of change or impact happening, then we might just be punching a card that says, done church, then I'll do lunch. Safe Christianity is the snare of the small story. Now let me talk to you about, those are small stories, and we all have our own small stories where we're the hero and we're the great one, and if, if you don't believe it, we'll tell you how great we are. It's that kind of thing that we build up around ourselves. Well, let me tell you something that God has allowed to happen within his body, within the church. And these are shared stories. Now, shared stories, we're getting there. We're getting there. You know, there's small stories. Man, we can't live there. Shared stories, now that's, that's, that's worth listening to. That, that's worth getting involved in because shared stories energize us. There's something about a shared experience that connects people. And when it comes to the family of faith, shared trials are often the linchpins that connect us one with another. Going through difficulty together. Let me just say, I know it's hard in Texas right now, and it's hard in Oklahoma and other states and where this blizzard has come in and this ice storm has come in and pipes are bursting and water is everywhere and, and heaters are not on and power is turned off. And I know we're sitting down here going, yeah, we're in Florida, it's 80 degrees. We get hurricanes. So just hang tight. Trials come to everyone. And when your neighbor is hurting, when your brother is hurting, and when your sister is hurting and you join in the journey to help, those shared experiences are energizing. When, when a hurricane hits the panhandle of Florida and a group from here get in their trucks and they drive over to the panhandle to help do cleanup and help do work, let me just say, you will have people, and this happens, this has happened here, church members, brothers and sisters in Christ, members of the same church who don't know each other. That, that, that's, that's what happens in a large family reunion. Get to know each other really well when they're working together through a difficult time. And those difficult times become those connectors. So that when you see that individual six months later, hey, how you doing? Do you remember when we were sleeping on that mat? And that you're, that's all you have and that's all you talk about and you're connected forever because of it. Shared experiences energize us. It reminds us that we're not alone. It reminds us that we don't have to get through life alone. The challenge and the difficulty of the church life that we've created and that is upon us now is you can be a hermit and be a church member. You can stay home and never connect with another individual. You can come sit in a pew, never talk to anybody for the entire time. You can, some of you may have attended here for years and know no one. Now, you're not saying, oh, I don't want people in my business. I don't want in your business, but I gotta get into some people's business. Just like you need, here's the, here's the thing. You know all the times in scripture it says one another? You gotta love one another, you gotta serve one another. You can't do the one another's of the New Testament by yourself. I don't need anybody. Yeah, you do. We all do. Here's the thing. If you're a member of this church, this may blow your mind. That means God put other people in this church because you need them. And you may be here just to be that person for someone else. 
shared experiences, shared stories. Some of you watching online, maybe some of you here never joined a church. I, I, you need to. Some of you have shopped around. You've gone local church to local church. You shop around like you can't figure out if you like Winn-Dixie or Publix or, or Walmart. You just keep going to different ones. So in love, in Christian love, that's what Paul said. So I'm going to say it in love to make sure you get this. That's what you say when you're about to say something that's going to maybe offend somebody. So I say this in love. If you have more shared stories with members of your Rotary Club, with members of the Lions Club you attend, with those that you work with, with those who happen to be the same fans of, or the fans of the same college football team you are, if you have more shared stories with your alumni association or your Thursday morning golf team or your rec team or any other club that, that you are a part of or any group, if you have more stories with them than with your church family, you may be missing the story that matters. Now you go, are you saying I need to abandon all that? No. But I am saying if you're, hanging, if you're the saved person in a room full of lost people that goes and does, if, you're, if your golfing buddies are all lost and you're saved, you need to really ask the question, why would God have a Christian golf with a bunch of lost people? It's not to help your game. At this point, you're living here, you're golfing once a week, you're making no money on it anyway. It may be relaxing to you, but there's a bigger story. Just remember this old adage, where do you put light? You put it in dark places. So if you have a group that you hang out with that are your friends, be their real friends, but be the light. And then come share those stories. Because let me tell you, there are people that have been trying to reach their friends just like you are, and they're about to give up, and they just need to hear that God's still saving people. Everybody in this room has a relative, a family member, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker that you believe in your head. You love them. You want them to know Jesus, but you've already thought they're too far gone. They'll never become a Christian. You, you, you're already there. And you need to hear your brother's story, your sister's story in a church group, in a small group, in a life group that has been going through the very same thing just to energize you to not give up, to keep praying, and to keep sharing. Because I will tell you, it is easier to give up and to start believing they'll never be saved. Now, I know not everybody's going to be saved, but I know I'm not supposed to give up and not lose faith, lose heart in that. In the letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes that God has gifted some as apostles, some as prophets, others as evangelists, others as shepherds and teachers. These are leaders given by God by, to the local church, not the universal church. There is an emphasis on local. Why? Because it is in the local church there is health in the gathering. There is a need for coming together. Equipping the saints to do the work of the church is done in the church, not virtually. And I know we're in a season where that's, some option, that's maybe the only option for many. But we're not going to live in this season forever. I do have faith in that. And the local body cannot be abandoned, and virtual church is not the answer. This is hands-on, in-person, as a family gathered, doing together and going together. This is needed for the equipping of the saints toward maturation. See, some of us just need a brother to lift us out of the baptismal pool and walk the journey a few miles with us. That's the equipping of the saints. Otherwise, 
I hate to think that we might be satisfied with a room full of spiritual babies for the remainder of the existence of the local church. That's not what God desires. If we don't get this, the end result may be gatherings of loosely connected small story celebrators, and we've got to have the bigger stories. Shared stories energize us. But lastly, the supernatural story is what enables us. Some people get all bent out of shape, go, are you talking about God being supernatural? I'm saying absolutely he's supernatural. He's so much more than natural. He's the creator of everything. He is supernatural, not in some science fiction version, not in some fantasy book. He is supernatural. He is more than the natural world. He created all of this. It is a story of grace, of mercy, of redemption, of things that only he can do, of rescue, of transformation, of hope. It is God's story. And it is so amazing that I can't imagine it on my own. No Hollywood producer, no fantasy writer could ever come up with a story that rivals the story that God has written. Every other story is a cheap carbon copy. His story is the big story, the real story, the right story. It is the story, and we must remember that. In all the mess that the world is in, I don't know if you've noticed that, but the world's in a mess. And you know that every Monday our men's group meets for breakfast, coffee, and Jesus, and we solve all the world's problems in 30 minutes. <laughs> then lunch comes, and we have to you know, reboot, but we'll get there. The world is a mess, and relationships are dissolving, and there is disease, there is loneliness. And, and let me just say as an aside, I'm concerned more, that, more than the pandemic of a viral infection, I am more concerned of the pandemic of loneliness that is overwhelming our people today. self Isolation is the enemy's tactic built on fear to make people lonely. So when the masks come off and the vaccines are there, lonely people, there's no vaccine to get over your loneliness. And that's still going to impact many. The church must respond. This is not guilting you out of loneliness because there are many people that are so very blue right now, they don't know how to get out of it. But that's what God has offered. God has placed people in his story, in his church, in the local church. But he has not done so accidentally. It has been done for his glory and for our good. That's what I said. Every church member that's a part of the family of God is here for the good of every other church member. Now, I know some of you hate to admit that you need, need somebody else, but you need somebody else. And I need other people, and so do you. And God has created this unique family here at 1140 Kingsley called First Baptist Church of Orange Park for his glory alone. And now we must step into that bigger story. God has created a story that's so much bigger than what we settle for sometimes. I was sharing earlier today with some new members that we're about to celebrate our 100th anniversary as a church. Can I just say 100 years of First Baptist Orange Park is a small story. I mean, I'm proud we've made it to, well, we haven't made it yet. We've got to get to May. But I'm, we're going to make it to May. And God has done some amazing things. But compared to his story, even our story of his little local church, it's just a part of it. By itself, it's just a small story. But as part of his story, it's a grand story. I guess the call and the invitation is this. To the non-Christians, are you ready to step into the story that matters? To say yes to Jesus? To repent of your sin? To get a new name? To be born again? To start over? Because God loves you so much, he wants you to. And to the Christians, this is a little self-evaluation. Have you settled for the small stories 
Are you just swimming around in the baptistry? It's time to grow because it's time to go. You know, years ago, I heard a story. It was an old, old story. You may have heard it. It was an old, old story about a Savior who came from glory. How he gave his life on a place called Calvary to save a wretch like me. Have you heard this? I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning, and then I repented of my sins and won the victory. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing, and how he made the lame to walk again and cause blind people to see. And then I cried, dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow, Jesus did that. He came, and he brought to me the victory. Church, there's no victory when you're standing still. And there's no victory in small stories. Father, I pray as we close this time of service today that the invitation begins and it is open now for those that are in the room and feel safe enough to come down the aisle to come see me or one of the other leaders down here, Lord, that you will give them that courage to do so. For those that are online, give them the courage to, to get out their phone or on their computer and email us at, at the email address on the screen or to call us here at the church or to message us through our Facebook page or Twitter account, however they can get to us. Lord, you've removed the barriers. So let us respond well. For those that need to join this church, to make this their family, to be all in for a story bigger than self, give them the courage to make that decision today and make it public as well. And Father, as we sing to you now this old hymn, for some in the room, it's going to bring back good memories. It's going to bring back memories of when they were younger and sitting in churches and singing out of hymn books. And it's going to bring a smile to their face, but in the midst of that, Lord, I pray that you will also let them read and sing the words as if they actually believe it. And may we worship you, not with repetitious song, but in words that declare your glory in all that you've done. And for some in this room and on TV now or watching it on their computers, this may be a song they've never heard before. I pray it becomes their testimony, their story. That old, old story is still the biggest and grandest story of all. And I thank you, Lord, that we have found victory in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing. And if you need to come forward, you come. We'll talk from a distance, but you come. Old, old story, how a Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a rest.
God bless you. Have a great week.